Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by David Rothkopf, CEO of the Rothkopf Group, contributing columnist at The Daily Beast, host of Deep State Radio, and a member of the Board of Contributors for USA Today. He has published a wide array of articles and books on the topics of international affairs, national security, history, and politics for a variety of outlets that include The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Foreign Affairs. David served as Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade Policy in the Clinton administration and is a graduate of Columbia University and attended the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. His next book, American Resistance, The Inside Story of How the Deep State Saved the Nation, will be released this fall and is available for pre-order now. David, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? So, David, today I want to get into the French elections and any correlations you see to what's happening here in the States, as well as how the GOP is in complete disarray. But first, I want to talk about how different world leaders have been responding to the events in Ukraine. So let's get into it. It's been just over two months since Russia invaded Ukraine. And last week, David, you published an article for The Daily Beast where you basically filled out a report card for how each of the major world leaders has handled the events there over the last 60 or so days. And we start with President Volodymyr Zelensky, who you gave an A+, I think that would be in agreement. And you gave President Biden an A. And you go through the list and obviously Vladimir Putin gets an F, Xi Jinping from China gets a D. But there's some in the middle, you know, the UK, the French, the Germans, who are much closer to all this than we are. So give us a sense of how you went through this list and what our listeners should really understand about the different people who are actively participating in Ukraine's defense, even if their troops aren't physically there. I went through it from the perspective of the war in Ukraine narrowly defined. So a lot of these leaders are performing at different levels of success in different areas, but specifically was looking at the degree to which they had made the right moral stand, the degree to which they made the right strategic stand to serve their national interests, but also to serve global interests. So for these reasons, Zelensky, who struggled as a president before, but has excelled during this crisis, gets the highest possible grade. You know, if I could have found a lower grade than F for Putin, given, you know, he's in the midst of not only committing serial war crimes, but also destroying his nation's standing in the world, I would have given him a lower grade. You know, some people suggested he should be expelled. I think he should be expelled. 
and then the other leaders who do, you know, show up in the middle, show up in the middle because they've hesitated, they've tried to take both sides, etc. So, you know, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, gets a mediocre grade because although they went off to a good start and said they're going to increase their defense budgets and be very supportive here, they backed off on that considerably, said the defense spending is going to be spread over a number of years and have really pussyfooted around the issue of energy sanctions to Russia. So, you know, he ends up in the middle. And it's that kind of reasoning that guided me throughout. Well, you know, I've been extremely impressed, and you mentioned him here as the leaders of the states of the former Eastern Bloc. For example, the prime minister of Estonia, who I think she has just been an incredible leader, not only, I think, morally, but also given Estonia's relatively small size compared to other NATO members, has given more than its fair share of arms and support to Ukraine. And it feels a little bit like the further away you get from the old Warsaw Pact countries, the old Eastern Bloc, the more that folks feel like that they don't have to take it as seriously. I mean, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the Baltics, like they remember this stuff. They lived under the boot heel for decades. And then you see the leaders of Finland and Sweden who are not yet NATO members, but it sounds like they might apply for NATO membership. Give us a little sense of how you see them, because first, I think they're women. And secondly, they're a different generation than most of these other leaders. They're much younger. They're much more dynamic. Give me a sense of how you see them. I think they've done a great job. I think the Baltics as a group have stepped up. And the reason is this is all fresh for them. They live with the threat of Russia coming across the border with little green men like they did in Ukraine in 2014 every day. And during the Trump years, there was a lot of talk about whether Trump would honor the Article 5 commitment and even defend these people. So they became extremely nervous at the time. And of course, the Finns have a long border with Russia and a bad history. And the Finns and Swedes, you know, are constantly being threatened by Russian naval activity, Russian air activity. And, you know, you can go straight down through the Warsaw Pact. If you have a border with Russia, what Putin has said in the run-up to this conflict and during this conflict has got to make you extremely uncomfortable. And that's why all of them have embraced this idea of forward NATO battle groups, more troops on their soil, spending more money, being tougher with the sanctions. And it's why they have essentially sort of led the initiative here, whereas the Germans and the French have dragged their heels. You know, when you think about Finland, as you mentioned, so the 1939-40 winter war, the Finns, you know, it's where they invented the Molotov cocktail, just inflicted grievous losses on, at the time, the Red Army under Stalin. Ultimately, they came to a settlement because it seemed like it was, you know, in everybody's best interest. But they put up a serious fight. We should assume that they would do something similar. But let me move a little bit westward. So in Hungary, someone like Viktor Orban you know, maybe he's not aligned with Vladimir Putin necessarily politically, but he might be ideologically. And he's stuck in the middle of the, both the EU and NATO, but seems to be sort of the bad child of both. And then you've got Germany, who it appears from an energy perspective and a trade perspective just, you know, went by this whole idea. The better we treat them from a trade perspective, the better they'll act. 
They shut down a whole bunch of their nuclear facilities, basically made themselves singularly dependent on this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which their former Chancellor Schroeder was neck deep in, is still neck deep in. And the Germans know better. I mean, they've been on the receiving end. Now, admittedly, they instigated it in World War II, but they've been on the receiving end of Russian aggression and Russian occupation. Do they think that this is one of those things where they can just ignore and it'll go away? I mean, it doesn't seem to me that you can sort of play halvesies on this. Well, let me take the questions one at a time, because Orban is, in fact, trying to play halvesies on this. And so on the one hand, Orban is an ethno-nationalist, authoritarian leader who's carved away at democracy in his country and has been very close to Putin. And he has not wanted to go along with many of the sanctions against the Russians. On the other hand, there are NATO troops in Hungary. Hungary has accepted a lot of Ukrainian refugees. And talking to senior U.S. officials, there is a hope, you know, to join NATO, to have new countries join NATO, you need a unanimous vote of the NATO members. And there is currently a hope that Orban will not block the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO. There's actually a belief that he won't block it. So to put it in domestic terms, and this is a terrible analogy, he's kind of the Joe Manchin of Europe, right? Manchin, on a regular basis, aggravates the Democrats, but he votes for judges, right? So you say, okay, you know, I'm going to take as much of the good as I can get. Orban is in that bag. The Germans, you know, you're right. They've been on the receiving end of Russian might. They were the cause of that war at the time. And they have a difficult history with forward projection of force as a result. But the other thing is that the Germans have been at the receiving end of lots of money from Russia, right? They have a big economic relationship with Russia. They're dependent on Russia for energy. And there are a lot of senior level Germans, like former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, who work for Russian companies or work with Russian companies. And so it's very hard for them to sort of get off the crack to which they've become addicted of commerce with Russia. But they're moving in that direction. They now say they're going to try to get off Russian oil quickly. You know, they made a mistake in the wake of the Fukushima disaster to sort of shut down all their nuclear power plants. As it turns out, if they hadn't done that, they wouldn't need any Russian oil and gas. And so they're reconsidering that. One of the interesting twists in Germany is that the foreign minister who had run for the chancellorship, Baerbock, who is a Green Party member, has taken a harder line than the chancellor. And her party has taken a harder line on this. And so there's division there, but they're feeling a lot of pressure. They've just announced the release of some armored, mechanized, anti-aircraft heavy weapons, which is a step in the right direction. They're still dragging their feet, but every week or so, some bit of progress is made. And they don't like the heat they're getting. And you talk about the Estonians and the, the Baltics. They are absolutely scathing in their criticisms of the Germans for dragging their heels. Let me ask you this, because in the time of the Cold War, because you called it the leaders of the new non-aligned, you know, there was the non-aligned movement that I think developed. I think it was at Sukarno and in India and a few that were, you know, they weren't part of the Eastern Bloc. They weren't part of the Western Democratic set. Now there's this new set, but, you know, like the Indians, right, which is also leaning authoritarian with their leader, 
what do you think they're doing? Are they just trying to stay out of it? Do they think, okay, you know, we were part of this in World War One, in World War Two, we were affected by it in the Cold War. Like, this is y'all's problem now. In the G77, there's 77 countries. There are a lot of countries around the world that have decided to not take a side in this. Some of those countries have done so because it's in their narrow national interest to do it. You know, the Indians have a lot of trade with Russia. They have a long historical relationship with Russia. They get a lot of their military equipment from Russia. They don't want to alienate Russia. But having said that, they're also part of the Quad with the United States. They're the world's biggest democracy. And I think there is a sense in the U.S. leadership that they're essentially both sidesing this thing. Now, morally, with regard to Ukraine, that's ludicrous, right? There aren't two sides to this. The Russians invaded a country without provocation of committed war crimes, committed genocide, destroyed cities. They're the bad guys. You know, Ukraine has defended itself. They're the good guy. This is not one of those complex, nuanced international crises. But I was in Washington the past couple of days. I was talking to senior administration officials. And I have to say, one of the things the Biden administration is doing right now that's super canny is that they're going to these countries, each of the countries in the G77, particularly the bigger ones, with complex relationships with the Russians. And they're saying, they're not judging them. They're not saying, you know, you're making a big mistake, you're aligning with Russia. They're saying, what do we have in common? How can we get our interests more aligned? And I think they're doing this because, A, that's smart diplomatically, but I also think they're doing this because they realize no one is doing more to damage Russia's standing in the world than Russia. And the way Russia has conducted this war, the way it has lost, how it is apparent to everyone that they are brutal and have no respect for international law has made it very tough for a lot of countries to maintain their closeness with Russia. And so you see that, you know, you were surprised maybe that the Turks were so supportive of the Ukrainians because they had had these relationships with the Russians before, but they're uncomfortable with it. You know, a lot of countries in the Middle East are trying to maintain both sides, but it's hard because Russia's doing such a bad job. So the administration right now is trying to take advantage of it, and I give them high points for that. You know, David, in a recent survey, I think it was maybe NBC out a couple of weeks ago, something like 70% of Americans said we should do more on behalf of the Ukrainians. This was Republicans, Democrats, Independents. But if you ask, should we send American combat troops there, it drops to like 20 or whatever. But it does not appear that what I believe has been President Biden's singular actions and example to Russia and the Western world and maybe the rest of the world, he's not getting a lot of credit. Usually you'd see some sort of rally to the flag effect here. He doesn't seem to be getting any of that. Is that because just as Americans, we're still surrounded by two oceans? Most of us don't know where Ukraine is. We see the horrible images, but it's not us. I mean, what do you think the dynamic is there? I think there have been some signs in the past couple of weeks of him getting a bit of a bump because he's handled this thing so well. But I also think some of it has to do with exogenous factors to this, which is we live in an incredibly polarized country in which half the country, your former colleagues in the Republican Party, are living in an information bubble that doesn't present this as a Biden success. I mean, you had Rand Paul yesterday questioning the Secretary of State and confronting him by presenting essentially Vladimir Putin talking points. You know, the Biden administration is responsible for this because they wanted Ukraine to go into NATO. That's not true, by the way. 
or you know you can understand why the russians did this because ukraine was part of russia no and then he said they were part of the soviet union and blinken said they were they're not anymore yeah as soon as they could get out they were delighted to be out so you do have this bizarre inexplicable shift where the republican party once known as the party of national security and anti russia you know strong views is now led by people who defend putin you know continue to do so despite the horrors of this war or contain people like the 63 members of the house of representatives who voted not to be supportive of nato you know tom cotton we should be doing more for ukraine but he didn't vote for the aid for ukraine right and let me just say this right as someone who grew up in a republican household right my dad worked on capitol hill worked for dan quayle worked for all these folks you know the idea that we're so far from ronald reagan and george hw bush is astonishing to me as well we're light years away from you know mr gorbachev tear down this wall in the evil empire but i think you're right which is and i think when you use the word leader and i had a conversation with someone about this earlier today this person i was talking to said tucker carlson is a leader of the republican party has he ever been elected to anything and this is what i said see this is the difference it's not a party anymore it's a white nationalist authoritarian movement you don't have to have elective office to have power donald trump's not in office he has power so the two leading figures of that movement are both pro-putin now trump as john cypher a press guest said who knows whether or not putin has anything on trump but trump believes he does Rand paul i can't begin to understand now this was a guy who was a libertarian and we should not forget that on, in 2017 the late john mccain went on the floor and said is this guy in the pay of russia because why would you act like this and so you know it's weird i think that they put themselves on tenuous ground with a lot of older white male voters who remember the cold war who still probably think russia's communist and so they don't really like that but i think that what you're seeing is is that starting at the grassroots you know base voters are now 95 percent white very evangelical very isolationist before the invasion remember it was eric prince of blackwater and steve bannon joking that you know vladimir putin was a real leader he knows there's men and women he knows there's only two bathrooms right there's no gays there and so it just feeds all into i think a very complementary mindset of the leaders of this movement which is both i think ugly and dangerous I think it's uglier and more dangerous than we think it is because you know donald trump isn't actually as much of a leader of this movement as tucker carlson is you saw tucker carlson getting on the air and saying he was not going to forgive kevin mccarthy for his moment of conscience fleeting moment of of conscience on january 6th even if trump did you know so tucker carlson was taking a harder line there and there are other people in the leadership of the party, you know, including a potential Donald Trump vice presidential running mate, General Mike Flynn, you know, who were playing footsies with the Russia. I mean, you know, he is, you know, out to lunch defending Putin. I think what's happened is it's not about a policy ever or a principle. It's about how do you get a rise out of this movement? How do you keep the movement moving? And as you know, the way you get things viral in the age of social media is that you enrage to engage. And that's what they do. And so who knows? But going back a little bit to your initial question, which led us into this, 
I think one of the things that's interesting here is not that Joe Biden is not getting enough credit, but that the Republican Party with so many pro-Putin folks in it is not getting more penalized. Now, that may change. And you brought up France at the very beginning. And Emmanuel Macron went after Marine Le Pen and said, you're close to Putin. You took money from Putin. You took money from Orban. You're an ethno-nationalist like him. And it hurt her standing because every day when a French person picked up the newspaper or looked at social media, it was elections right next to atrocities in Ukraine. And it may be that Putin is not just damaging his diplomatic relationships around the world, but people like Orban, people like Le Pen are pulling back away from him. And he may be damaging, you know, in some way, you know, we'll have to see come election time whether the proximity of all these Republicans to Putin takes a toll. So just to continue with the French election of last week, you know, Macron wins by 16, 17 points over Le Pen. You know, the French are notoriously fickle about everybody and everything, right, especially their own leaders. But what was interesting in some of the news reports about what folks were saying coming out was, you know, I don't really like Macron, but I sure as hell wasn't going to turn it over to her. So I guess my question is, do you believe that some of that, to your point, not only about tying the Tuckers and the Trumps and the Rand Pauls of the world to Putin directly, but also do you believe that there is something to be said for, look, this is a choice. It's not a choice about Joe Biden or something else. It's a choice about, do you want grownups? Do you want people who actually go to work trying to do the right thing? Or do you want chaos and cruelty and ugliness? And, you know, they want you poor and they want your kids stupid, right? Like, should what I'll call pro-democracy forces be going that directly at this? Because it seems like, to your point, and there was even an interview, David, with the new executive editor of the New York Times, where he basically said, like, if all we did was point out pro-democracy versus anti-democracy, if all we did was say, like, here's what the Democrats said, and it's true, and here's what Republicans said, but it's a lie, like, that would be too partisan. That seems crazy to me. But that's the perspective, I think, of a lot of media. Well, I mean, that's just a crock of shit. And it's not journalism. You know, journalism is not about balance. It's about truth. And that's what objectivity is supposed to get you to. And if you have a party in the United States that's effectively a malevolent force trying to destroy democracy, rip off its supporters, support the one-tenth of one percent in the country, support our enemies, where's the balance? And the answers of the new editor were troubling. But just to go back to the French example, you're right. Emmanuel Macron had a 39% approval rating before this election. He outperformed his approval rating by nearly 20 points. And why is that? Well, it was because he was running against a human, not people's generalized feelings about Macron. And he was running against Le Pen, and she was a terrible candidate. Well, you know, at some point, Joe Biden presumably is going to run against somebody. And if it's Donald Trump, or it's Ron DeSantis, or it's somebody of that ilk who has a long track record of being really bad at governing, of being really intolerant, of promoting terrible policies, of being corrupt, of embracing COVID and Putin all at once, you know, it's going to be harder 
than the current polling suggests for the Republican Party. You know, the one thing that I don't know and I worry about is how that translates in the fall of this year, because those elections are local. People tend to like the guy they know or the woman they know. And most of the elections won't be as starkly a bad choice. But we will see some, right? You know, it looks like in Ohio, you know, all of a sudden J.D. Vance is leading the Republican field. And, you know, he's just a hideous candidate. And so, you know, Tim Ryan, who's running against him, is a good, solid citizen. He's not the most charismatic No, but he's right for the state and he's from the right part of the right state. Right. And so in the cases where we see choices like that one, they may tell us a lot more about where we're going to be in 2024. You know, just extending on that. So I want to talk about this. Democrats have, I think, historically been fractious and the national, especially D.C. sort of Acela corridor media takes them to task continuously for things that are policy disagreements, which are, I think, a normal part of American political life, or it used to be anyway. The Republicans now, to your point, you've got Trump out there doing whatever the heck he's going to do. He's endorsing some people. He's not endorsing others. You've got Carlson out there being as crazy and as wacky and as weird as he can be. You've got Kevin McCarthy, who's on tape with Liz Cheney saying, like, I'm going to call him and tell him maybe he should resign. And, you know, now Matt Gates and some of the other nuts are coming out after him. To your point, you've got J.D. Vance in Ohio, who's endorsed by Trump. You've got Dr. Oz and a Wall Street gajillionaire in Pennsylvania. You've got a disgraced former Navy SEAL, former governor who tied up his girlfriend and maybe beat up his wife. Like these are the leading candidates in the Republican Party. So tell me exactly again how the Republican Party is unified and marching forward on one front. Yeah, and the Democrats, you know, can't shoot straight. Maybe both are the same, but it doesn't seem to me that the coverage appears to be equitable. Our media constellation is different than it's ever been. And more of the discourse takes place in social media environments where people pick stories because their friends may like the stories and it'll help their status with their friends. And so the chemistry of American politics is just different. And it's hard to know how this is all going to play out. There's some shoes that haven't dropped that are going to color this, right? The Supreme Court, which is now an arm of the Republican Party, is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. That's going to galvanize views, theoretically, across the country of women and men who care about the issue. You may see some other big decisions on things like gun rights or prayer in the schools that are going to be galvanizing. Starting in just a few weeks, you have the January 6th committee starting to do hearings in prime time on TV. And they seem to feel that there's some blockbuster developments that may happen there. There are a bunch of legal cases that are pending against Trump that could have big time consequences. And there's no limit to the amount of mayhem that really bad leaders can do in the run-up to the election. I mean, look at Ron DeSantis' moves against Disney that have actually cut Disney's tax bill and are probably illegal, or Greg Abbott's decision to close the Texas border that you know actually drove up inflation and caused food shortages and didn't have one positive effect of the kind that he sought in terms of interdicting 
trafficking in people or drugs or anything. Because it was bullshit to begin with. He knew it wouldn't change anything. Right. They're lousy. They're terrible leaders. And so they're going to do terrible things. And so, yes, you look at the polls right now and you worry about what's going to happen in November. But this is the GOP that's backing Putin. This is the GOP that's backing Trump. This is the GOP that's backing Tucker. This is the GOP of J.D. Vance and Greitchens and Mehmet Oz and all these other characters. There are legal cases and all these other things percolating. And so November is a long time away in an America that has the attention span of a mayfly. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, listen, before we let you go, tell us a little bit about your book coming out. It's called American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. I know that you don't want to give away the store and we want folks to go out and buy it, but give us a sense of what your angle was and, and why you decided to write this book. I haven't talked about this book to anybody. So this is like the first time I've talked about it. It's got a few really shocking premises that underlie it. I've been in Washington. You sound like you've been in Washington for a long time. I came to Washington the first time 40 years ago, and then I came there to live in the Clinton administration, and I spent a long time there. Most of the people I know in Washington, Republicans and Democrats, are actually good people. Most of the people who work in the government, I know this is like shocking and completely <laughs> contrary to what most of the people that I've met in government are interested in public service. They follow the law. They honor the Constitution. And what happened during the Trump administration was that those people, some of whom were high appointees of the Trump administration, some of whom were civil servants, foreign service officers, intelligence officers, military officers, those people kept things from being much, much worse. And during the Trump administration, you know, you had a president who would say things like, hey, let's attack North Korea now, or let's fire missiles at the caravans in Mexico, or let's build a moat and fill it up with alligators. There are millions of these things, but a lot of them didn't happen. Why didn't they happen? Because public servants in the administration got together and they said, we can't let that happen. We actually need to protect the next election. If the president won't talk about Russia, we have to deal with Russia via other channels. If the president is going to go and appoint a bunch of people, you know, the Richard Grinnells of this world who are completely unqualified for their job because they're loyal, then we've got to find means of offsetting it. And so what happened was that when a lot of the checks that you expect in the government, like the check between the Congress and the executive branch or the courts and the executive branch stopped working, the check that kept working time after time was people. It's essentially nonpartisan. It's hopeful. And I think it's loaded with lessons about what to fear if Trump were to come back or people like him were to come back and how to handle if that kind of thing happened. All right. Well, David, before we let you get out of here, where can our listeners find you on social media? For now, you can go to DJ Rothkopf on Twitter. We'll see what happens with Twitter. I said I was going to leave when he took it over. He hasn't taken it over yet, but I'm I'm going to be there until it's intolerable to be there. The DSRnetwork.com is the website for our podcast. We do three, four, five podcasts a week. It's going up to six, seven, eight podcasts a week on, you know, expert perspectives on foreign policy, national security policy, health policy, and a little bit of politics. So that's one. And of course, I write every week a couple of times, sometimes for the Daily Beast. 
and every couple of weeks for USA Today. And, you know, I'm on MSNBC every so often. Well, wonderful. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. David, I want to thank you for joining me today and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.